Welcome to Jabberwocky Audio Theatre. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you. Visit our website at jabberaudio.com slash support to learn more or go to patreon.com slash team jabberwocky. The following audio theater is rated ADG for general audiences. Jabberwocky Audio Theater presents Through the Looking Glass. Today's presentation, Prince Prigio by Andrew Lang, part two of six. Well, welcome back, listeners. And since it has been a week, I suppose some sort of summary is in order. So, first of all, we have established that, by and large, the events of this fairy tale take place in the very real faux kingdom of Pantuflia. The royal family of Pantuflia has a long tradition of wanting quiet lives, which is somewhat contradictory given their history is simply stuffed with all sorts of dramatic figures you may have heard of, like Cinderella I, the Marquis de Carabas, and, oh, uh, but I'm getting off track from this story. So, anyway, in Chapter 1, we are introduced to King Grognio and his queen, who dearly want a child, and finally get one in the form of Crown Prince Prigio, who, well, how shall I put this? You see, the queen is really quite a marvelous woman and quite clever, and really any man would be quite happy to be married to her. Excuse me, I never said I wasn't happily married. Yes, you're good. We're we're not going there at all. The point being that she really didn't believe in fairies, which, as you might imagine, is a bit of a big thing when you're in a fairy tale. So when it came to the christening of young Prince Prigio, the fairies got rather snubbed. Again, rather a big deal in fairy tales. And so the fairies decided to give a decidedly complicated gift. My child, you shall be too clever. So, basically, the prince irritated everyone, which is very well documented in Chapter 2, which I think you can go back to, because I think last week's episode is available somewhere. But anyway, now we're in Chapter 3, which, uh, can we get the music cue? Yes, thank you. Chapter 3 is about the fire drake of whom we'll learn more in a bit, but he's kind of like a lizard and kind of like a dragon and he's all heat and death and really the kind of creature you send knights to go out and slay. Now, where we pick up, because we weren't able to quite finish up Chapter 3 last week, was that King Grognio wanted his son Prigio, his firstborn, to go and slay the Fire Drake. Now, the king has three sons and knows, per historical documents, which you and I know as fairy tales, his first two sons will fail. However, even though he feels bad for his second son, Enrico, he really doesn't feel bad about sending Prigio, whom we have already established in Chapter 2 is very annoying indeed. Then the king went to Prigio and said that his country was in danger and that he was determined to leave the crown to whichever of them would bring him the horns, for it has horns, and tail of the fire drake. It is an awkward brute to tackle. The king said, But you are the oldest, my lad. 
Go where glory waits on you. Put on your armor and be off with you. This the king said, hoping that either the fire drake would roast Prince Prigio alive, which he could easily do, as I have said, for he is all over as hot as a red-hot poker, or that if the prince succeeded, at least his country would be freed from the monster. But the prince, who was lying on the sofa doing sums in compound division for fun, said in the politest way, Thanks to the education your majesty has given me, I have learned that the fire drake, like the siren, the fairy, and so forth, is a fabulous animal which does not exist. But even granting, for the sake of argument, that there is a fire drake, your majesty is well aware that there is no kind of use in sending me. It is always the eldest son who goes out first and comes to grief on these occasions, and it is always the third son who succeeds. Send Alfonso. This was the youngest brother. And he will do the trick at once. At least if he fails, it will be most unusual. And Enrico can try his luck. Then he went back to his arithmetic and his slate, and the king had to send for Prince Alfonso and Prince Enrico. They both came in very warm, for they had been fencing, and the day was unusually hot. Look here, said the king. Just you two younger ones look at Prigio. You see how hot it is, how coolly he takes it, and the country suffering, and all on account of a fire drake, you know, which has apparently built his nest not far off. Well... I have to ask that lout of a brother of yours to kill it, and he says... That he does not believe in fire drakes, interrupted Prigio. The weather is warm enough without going out hunting. Not believe in fire drakes? cried Alfonso. I wonder what you do believe in. Just let me get at that creature. For he was as brave as a lion. Ho there, page, my chain armor, helmet, lance, and buckler... Ah, Molinda! Ah, Molinda! Which was his war cry. The page ran to get the armor, but it was so uncommonly hot that he dropped it and put his fingers in his mouth, crying. <laughs> you had better put on flannels, Alfonso, for this kind of <laughs> work, said Prigio. And if I were you, I'd take a light garden engine full of water to squirt at the enemy. Happy thought! said Alfonso. I will. And off he went, kissed his dear Melinda, bade her keep a lot of dances for him. There was to be a dance when he had killed the fire drake. And then he rushed to the field. But he never came back anymore. Everyone wept bitterly. <laughs> Everyone but Prince Prigio, for he thought it was a practical joke and said that Alfonso had taken the opportunity to start off on his travels and see the world. There is some dreadful mistake, sir, said Prigio to the king. You know as well as I do that the youngest son has always succeeded, up to now. But I entertain great hopes of Enrico. And he grinned, for he fancied it was all nonsense and that there were no fire drakes. Enrico was present when Prigio was consoling the king in this unfeeling way. Enrico, my boy, said his majesty, the task awaits you and the honor. When you come back with the horns and tail of the fire drake, you shall be crowned prince, and Prigio shall be made an usher at the grammar school. 
It is all he is fit for. Enrico was not quite so confident as Alfonso had been. He insisted on making his will, and he wrote a poem about the pleasures and advantages of dying young. Uh, this is part of it. The violet is a blossom sweet that droops before the day is done. Slain by thine overpowering heat, O sun, and I, like that sweet purple flower, may roast or boil or broil or bake. Burned by thy terrific power, fire drake. This poem comforted Enrico more or less, and he showed it to Prigio, but the prince only laughed. <laughs> and said that the second line of the last verse was not very good. For violets do not roast or boil or broil or bake. <laughs> Enrico tried to improve it, but could not. So he read it to his cousin, Lady Kathleena, just as it was, and she cried over it. <laughs> Though I don't think she fully understood it. And Enrico cried a little, too. <laughs> However, next day he started with a spear, a patent refrigerator, and a lot of bottles people throw at fires to put them out. But he never came back again. <laughs> After shedding torrents of tears, the king summoned Prince Prigio to his presence. Dastard! He said, Poltroon! Your turn, which should have come first, has arrived at last. You must fetch me the horns and the tail of the fire drake. Probably you will be grilled, thank goodness. But who will give me back Enrico and Alfonso? Indeed, your majesty, said Prigio. You must permit me to correct your policy. Your only reason for dispatching your sons in pursuit of this dangerous, but I believe fabulous and therefore imaginary, animal was to ascertain which of us would most worthily succeed to your throne. At such a date, long may it be deferred of your lamented decease. Now there can be no further question about the matter. I unworthy as I am, represent the sole hope of continuance of the royal family. Therefore, to send me after the fire drake were both dangerous and mm, unnecessary. Prince Prigio employed the subjunctive mood were, dear listeners, for he was a great grammarian. Dangerous, because if he treats me as you say he did my brothers, oh, my unhappy brothers, the throne of Pantuflia will want an heir. But if I do come back alive, why, I cannot be more the true heir than I am at present now, can I? <laughs> Ask the Lord Chief Justice if you don't believe me. These arguments were clearly and undeniably correct that the king, unable to answer them, withdrew into a solitary place where he could express himself with freedom and give rein to his passions. Ooh. Chapter 4 How Prince Prigio was deserted by everybody. Meanwhile, Prince Prigio had to suffer many unpleasant things. Though he was the crown prince, and though his arguments were unanswerable, everybody shunned him for a coward. The queen, who did not believe in Firedrakes, alone took his side. He was not only avoided by all, 
but he had most disagreeable scenes with his own cousins, Lady Melinda and Lady Kathleen. In the garden, Lady Melinda met him walking alone and did not bow to him. Dear Molly, said the prince, who liked her, how have I been so unfortunate as to offend you? My name, sir, is Lady Melinda, she said very proudly. And you have sent your own brother to his grave. Oh, excuse me, said the prince. I am certain he has merely gone off on his travels. He'll come back when he's tired. There are no fire drakes. A French writer says they are purement fabuleux, purely fabulous, you know. Prince Alfonso has gone on his travels and will come back when he is tired. And was he then tired of me? Cried poor Melinda, <laughs> bursting into tears and forgetting her dignity. Oh. I beg your pardon. I never noticed. I'm sure I am very sorry," cried the prince, who, never having been in love himself, never thought of other people. And he tried to take Melinda's hand, but she snatched it from him and ran away through the garden to the palace, leaving Prince Prigio to feel foolish and, for once, ashamed. As for Lady Kathleena, she swept past him like a queen without a word. So the prince, for all his cleverness, was not happy. <sighs> After several days had gone by, the king returned from the solitary place where he had been speaking his mind. He now felt calmer and better, and so at last he came back to the palace. But on seeing Prince Prigio, who was lolling in a hammock translating Egyptian hieroglyphs into French poetry for his mother. The king broke out afresh and made use of the most cruel and impolite expressions. At last, he gave orders that all the court should pack up and move to a distant city, and that Prince Prigio should be left alone in the palace by himself. For he was quite unendurable, the king said, and he could not trust his own temper when he thought of him. And he grew so fierce that even the queen was afraid of him now. <laughs> the poor queen cried a good deal, Prigio being her favorite son on account of his acknowledged ability and talent. But the rest of the courtiers were delighted at leaving Prince Prigio behind. For his part, he very good-naturedly showed them the best and shortest road to Falkenstein, the city where they were going, and easily proved that neither the chief secretary for geography nor the general of the army knew anything about the matter, which indeed they did not. The ungrateful courtiers left Prigio with hoots and yells, for they disliked him so much that they forgot he would be king one day. He therefore reminded them of this little fact in future history, which made them feel uncomfortable enough. And then he lay down in his hammock and went to sleep. When he wakened, the air was cold and the day was beginning to grow dark. Prince Prigio thought he would go down and dine at a tavern in the town, for no servants had been left with him. But what was his annoyance when he found that his boots, his sword, his cap, his cloak, all his clothes, in fact, except those he wore, had been taken away by the courtiers merely to spite him? 
His wardrobe had been ransacked, and everything that had not been carried off had been cut up, burned, and destroyed. Never was such a spectacle of wicked mischief. It was as if hay had been made of everything he possessed. What was worse, he had not a penny in his pocket to buy new things, and his father had stopped his allowance of fifty thousand pounds a month. Can you imagine anything more cruel and unjust than this conduct? For it was not the prince's fault that he was so clever. The cruel fairy had made him so. But even if the prince had been born clever, as may have happened to you, was he to be blamed for that? The other people were just as much in the fault for being so incurious. But the world, my dear children, can never be induced to remember this. If you are clever, you will find it best not to let people know it. At least the very incurious among them, if you want them to like you. Well, here was the prince in a pretty plight. Not a pound in his pocket, not a pair of boots to wear, not even a cap to cover his head from the rain. Nothing but cold meat to eat, and never a servant to answer the bell. <sighs> I think I should stop to take a sip of water. Chapter Five: What Prince Prigio Found in the Garret. The prince walked from room to room of the palace, but unless he wrapped himself up in a curtain, there was nothing for him to wear when he went out in the rain. At last, he climbed up a turret stair in the very oldest part of the castle, where he had never been before, and at the very top was a little round room, a kind of garret. The prince pushed in the door with some difficulty. Not that it was locked, but the handle was rusty and the wood had swollen with the damp. The room was very dark. Only the last gray light of the rainy evening came through a slit of the window, one of those narrow windows that they used to fire arrows out of in old times. But in the dark, the prince saw a heap of all sorts of things lying on the floor, and on the table there were two caps. He put one on—an old, gray, ugly cap. It was made of felt. There was a pair of boots, and he kicked off his slippers and got into them. They were a good deal worn, but fitted as if they had been made for him. On the table was a purse with just three gold coins in it—old ones too. And this, as you may fancy, the prince was very well pleased to put in his pocket. A sword with a sword belt he buckled about his waist, and the rest of the articles, a regular collection of odds and ends, he just left where they were lying. Then he ran downstairs and walked out of the hall door. Chapter Six: What Happened to Prince Prigio in Town? By this time, the prince was very hungry. The town was just three miles off, but he had such a royal appetite that he did not like to waste it on bad cookery. And the people of the royal town were bad cooks. I wish I were at the bear in Gluckstein," said he to himself, for he remembered that there was a very good cook there. But then, the town was twenty-one leagues away, sixty-three long miles. No sooner had the prince said this and taken just three steps, than he found himself at the door of the Bear Inn at Gluckstein. This is the most extraordinary dream," said he to himself, for he was far too clever, of course, to believe in seven-league boots. Yet he had a pair on at that very moment, and it was they which had carried him in three strides from the palace to Gluckstein. 
The truth is that the prince, in looking about the palace for clothes, had found his way into the very old lumber room where the magical gifts of the fairies had been thrown by his clever mother, who did not believe in them. But this, of course, the prince did not know. Now you should be told that seven league boots only take those prodigious steps when you say you want to go a long distance. Otherwise, they would be very inconvenient when you only want to cross the room, for example. Perhaps this has not been explained to you by your governess? All you listeners have governesses, yes? Uh, I am certain I would have heard if that was no longer the standard. Well, the prince walked into the bear, and it seemed odd to him that nobody took any notice of him. And yet his face was as well known as that of any man in Pantuflia for everybody had seen it, at least in pictures. He was so puzzled by not being attended to as usual that he quite forgot to take off his cap. He sat down at a table, however, and shouted, Kellner! At which all the waiters jumped and looked round in every direction. But nobody came to him. At first he thought they were too busy, but presently another explanation occurred to him. The king, said he to himself, has threatened to execute anybody who speaks to me or helps me in any way. Well, I don't mean to starve in the midst of plenty. Anyhow, here goes. The prince rose and went to the table in the midst of the room where a huge roast turkey had just been placed. He helped himself to half the breast, some sausages, chestnut stuffing, bread sauce, potatoes, and a bottle of red wine, burgundy. He then went back to a table in a corner, where he dined very well, nobody taking any notice of him. When he had finished, he sat watching the other people dining and smoking his cigarette. As he was sitting thus, a very tall man, an officer in the uniform of the guards, came in and, walking straight to the prince's table, said, Kellner, clean this table and bring in the bill of fare. With these words, the officer sat down suddenly in the prince's lap, as if he did not see him at all. He was a heavy man, and the prince, enraged at this insult, pushed him away and jumped to his feet. As he did so, his cap dropped off. The officer fell on his knees at once, crying, Pardon, my prince, pardon, I never saw you. This was more than the prince could be expected to believe. Nonsense, Count Frederick von Matterhorn, said the prince. You must be intoxicated, sir. You have insulted your prince and your superior officer. Consider yourself under arrest. You shall be sent to a prison tomorrow. On this, the poor officer appealed piteously to everybody in the tavern. Please, uh, my prince, anyone, you did not see him? They all declared that they had not seen the prince, nor ever had an idea that he was doing them the honor of being in the neighborhood of their town. More and more offended, and convinced that there was a conspiracy to annoy and insult him, the prince shouted for the landlord, called for his bill, threw down his three pieces of gold without asking for change, and went into the street. It is a disgraceful conspiracy. The king shall answer for this. I shall write to the newspapers at once. He was not put in a better temper by the way in which people hustled by him in the street. They ran against him exactly as if they did not see him, and then staggered back in the greatest surprise, looking in every direction for the person they had jostled. In one of these encounters, the prince pushed so hard against a poor old beggar woman that she fell down. 
As he was usually most kind and polite, he pulled off his cap to beg her pardon when, behold, the beggar woman gave one dreadful scream and fainted. <sighs> A crowd was collecting, and the prince, forgetting he had thrown down all his money in the tavern, pulled out his purse. Then he remembered what he had done and expected to find it empty, but lo, there were three pieces of gold in it. Overcome with surprise, he thrust the money into the woman's hand and put on his cap again. In a moment, the crowd, which had been staring at him, rushed away in every direction with cries of terror, declaring that there was a magician in the town and a fellow who could appear and disappear at pleasure. By this time, you or I, or anyone who was not so extremely clever as Prince Prigio, would have understood what was the matter. He had put on, without knowing it, not only the seven-league boots, but the cap of darkness, and had taken Fortunatus's purse, which could never be empty, however often you took all the money out. All those and many other delightful wares the fairies had given him at his christening, and the prince had found them in the dark garret. But the prince was so extremely wise, and learned, and scientific, that he did not believe in fairies, nor in fairy gifts. Well, at this point, even though we are not quite at the end of the chapter, perhaps it is an opportune moment to close our telling of the tale this week, uh, for some people are signaling to me that we're out of time. Still, I think it's something of a shame, because the author did set down his thoughts in the form of chapters, and he did intend you all to hear or read the thoughts in those mental compartments, as it were. Oh, uh, the people I mentioned before are gesticulating quite emphatically, truth be told. So I am rather sorry, but we'll have to end things for now. So, uh, music? Oh yes, th that is nice. You've been listening to Jabberwocky Audio Theater. Today's presentation, Prince Prigio, Part 2 of 6. The story was written by Andrew Lang and lightly adapted for radio by Bjorn Munson. This program has been produced by Jabberwocky Audio Theater in association with WERALP, Radio Arlington 96.7 FM, Arlington, Virginia. Featured in the cast were Bjorn Munson as the narrator, Kevin Murray as King Grognio, Nick Zipinto as Prince Prigio, Mike Bernal as Prince Alfonso, Francis Abbey as Prince Enrico, Elizabeth Farrington as Lady Kathleena, Amy Teabear as Lady Melinda, Mary Lecter as the Queen and the Old Beggar Woman and William R. Coughlin as Count Frederick, with additional voices by Francis Abbey, Mike Bernal, William R. Coughlin, Kim Davenport, Elizabeth Farrington, Tara Garwood, Mary Lecter, Bjorn Munson, and Brooks Tegler. Recorded at Tolgi Wood Studios in Deepest Springfield, with supplemental recording in many other places. See our show notes on jabberaudio.com for details. There, you'll also find our latest episodes and enough information to satisfy a prince. Well, I have been rather busy, but I promise I will get to it. Dialogue editing by Maurice Malda. 
with sound editing and final mixing by William R. Kaufman. Post-production services provided by Tohu Bohu Productions, LLC. If you're enjoying Prince Prigio and the other yarns we spin at Jabberwocky Audio Theater, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast provider of choice. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash teamjabberwocky for exclusive content and to help us continue to bring you further tales of silliness, suspense, and high adventure. Until next time, this is Kim Davenport saying thanks for listening and tune in next week for part three of Prince Prigio. Hast thou slain the Jabberwock? 